Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. I am thrilled to introduce you to our sponsor, Windshape Marriage. Their weekend retreats will strengthen your marriage and you will enjoy this gorgeous setting, delicious food, and quality time with your spouse. To find out more, visit them online at windshapemarriage.org. That's W-I-N-S-H-A-P-E marriage.org. Thanks for your sponsorship. First of all, Mark and I get to celebrate 13 years of marriage today. Happy anniversary, favorite. I love you. Also, Gary Thomas joins us today for the fifth most popular episode from 2021. His mixture of scripture, storytelling, humor, and skilled communication is truly a work of art. And you're going to end this conversation excited to connect with the Lord, to understand your spouse better, and you'll have a great place to begin discipling your children. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Gary. Thank you, Laura. I'm just delighted to be here. I I love talking about what we're about to talk about. So thank you for giving me an opportunity to do that. It is truly my pleasure. And will you just start us off with a quick glimpse of your life right now? Well, uh, my wife and I have been married for about 37 years. We have three grown kids, one grandchild and another one coming on the way in October. I've been a writer and speaker most of my life. So I'm on the teaching team of a Second Baptist Church in Houston. Uh, So I spend a lot of time writing and speaking. So my wife and I, we like to bike and walk and hike, and she loves to paddleboard. And I suffer trying to paddleboard staying dry. So that's sort of (laughs) (laughs) our life at home and on vacation. I love it. And like you mentioned, you are a prolific writer. So today I want to focus on a book that you recently re-released titled Sacred Pathways, Nine Ways to Connect with God. So Gary, what was the original book proposal for Sacred Pathways and how did it evolve over time through your quiet time spent with the Lord? Yeah, it it was fascinating. It had so little to do with what actually came out. Actually, though, good, much to my publisher's delight. It was just about how to be more creative in your quiet times. And and most of the time, Laura, when I'm writing a book, I feel like an architect. How big of a house do I want? How many stories? Where's the front door? Where do you put the windows? And I don't want to sound too mystical since a lot of your listeners probably don't know me at all, but I felt more like an archaeologist. Instead of an architect designing this house, this book in particular, I felt like I was digging in the ground and dusting it off and these rooms appeared. I I don't know where the nine came from. I mean, I went through Christian classics, particularly works of ancient Christians that were known for what was called spiritual direction. I was looking through scripture. I was looking through church history. And just suddenly these, these nine windows different ways that people have found that they most clearly see God and most effectively connect with God just sort of came out. And so I suddenly had a book about nine sacred pathways. And again, at the proposal, I had no idea that we would get to that place, but it was really fun 
to be a part of it. And I think nobody learned as much as I did in writing the book. I don't think anybody could learn as much reading it. Well, and before we go into each one of the nine that you talk about, first, will you elaborate on why discipline and delight are both important in our relationship with the Lord? Yeah, well, I was early on in my faith. I'm just thinking as a college student and whatnot, I really stress discipline. And I do think discipline is important. But the reality is desire is just as important. If we can find a way to connect with God that we desire, then discipline, while helpful occasionally, it's not the driver. What I want is for people to look at their time with the Lord, not as an obligation to check off. Okay, I've got that done. Because I know most of the listeners with families and obligations and, and all of that, they don't need another thing to check off. But I want their time with the Lord to be this oasis, this this garden that they miss visiting, that if it if, if somehow life crashes and they don't get to it, it's not like, oh, I should have. It's, boy, I really wish I could have. It's an entirely different response. And so the sacred pathways aren't about the oughts or you should. It really is about these are invitations. These are ways that other Christians have connected with God. It's been powerful in their life and perhaps you'll find a way to connect with God this way as well. And so I'm curious, Gary, with your own personal walk with the Lord, how do you think that transition came about from you said you used to focus really heavily on the discipline and then there was a switch? Yeah, well, like I said, I was the least likely person to write this book for because I, I was sort of a legalistic discipler. I just pray that God will give mercy to those poor college students I worked with at the time and that I didn't turn them away. But God brought me through this wonderful life process. The first was falling in love with the woman who became my wife. And though I loved Lisa so much, we, we were very different from each other. I, I was a consummate junk food junkie when we met in college. Big Macs, ice cream, Captain Crunch, and pizza were sort of my four food groups. <laughs> and Lisa grew up in a family where they ate, you know, 100% whole wheat bread and, you know, things that grow. Stuff like that is what she considered food. And so... It, it was amazing that we still fell in love. And then we also had very different schedules. I thought if you're going to have a quiet time, you got to get up early. God is busy running the world. If you sleep in past 7 a.m., you might be doing something in China or Russia. You've missed a boat. I mean, Jesus got up early. I could talk about great saints that got up early. Well, Lisa is not a morning person. In fact, in college, if she took an 8 o'clock class, which wasn't likely, but if she was forced to, she would roll out of bed at about 740 brush her teeth, brush her hair, and get to class, go to classes all day. And then after lunch, she would go up onto the roof. She loved to go up onto the roof with her Bible and pray, and she would call it a quiet time. And, you know, the flirty way that you do this in college, I gave her such a hard time. Oh, yeah, right, Lisa. Who, who goes up onto the roof and prays in the afternoon and, and calls that a, a quiet time? Well, she couldn't say anything, but two weeks went by. And she knocks on my dorm room door. I hear this knock. I open it up and she's just smiling. I'm going, what? She walks over to my desk. She opens up my Bible and she turns it to Acts 10, 9, where you read this. About noon the following day, Peter went up on the roof to pray. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be. How can that possibly be in there? In fact, she even initialed it. It was LRE. And so now she's LRT because she's my wife. But she, she even initialed it just in case I would I would ever forget. And I, and I was humbled. Uh, and so it really opened up my eyes. I mean, I knew that God was a big part of her life. I wouldn't have been interested in her 
if he wasn't. But but it showed me maybe don't be quite so legalistic. And then, Laura, when I had kids, God opened the door even more because I have three children. They all have different personalities. My oldest is a classic introvert, very relationally based. When she was younger, she'd like to go to coffee shops and imagine the conversations people were having. She liked to listen to Dr. Laura back then. My son is very competitive. We would play sports, talk about sports, watch sports. My youngest daughter is a classic extrovert, and we would do these fun things and whatnot. And nothing, Laura, nothing would have grieved me more than if my introverted daughter, Allie, thought she had to be like my extroverted daughter, Kelsey, for me to enjoy spending time with her. Or my competitive son, Graham, felt like he had to be like my introverted daughter, Allie, for us to enjoy being together. I liked having a different relationship with each one of them. Now, I received their personalities, you know, that whole nature nurture debate. When I talk to most parents, they know your kid comes out with a personality. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure we nurture certain things. But for the most part, if you've been a parent, you realize, boy, they come out hardwired in, in certain ways. So God gave us that hardwiring. And so I think it makes sense that we worship him and we honor him as creator when we acknowledge that he didn't create us as cookie cutters. He, he didn't use a cookie cutter to create us. It's different. And I think if I like having a different relationship with my kids, even more, a heavenly father enjoys having a different relationship and doing different things with each one of his children. Now, now that was, Laura, the, the way that God got through my prejudices. But it was really through a study of scripture because we don't want to base what we do on our own experiences. But it was really through a study of scripture when the the stereotypical quiet time that I was such a disciple of an ardent proponent of isn't found in scripture. I mean, Abraham would go around and build altars when he met with the Lord. You didn't really see other people doing that. David would fight battles. Solomon built a temple. Mary sat quietly at Jesus's feet. And I was really struck by the difference between David and Solomon. He wanted to build God's temple. And God said, no, David, you, you were my warrior nothing wrong with being a warrior. I needed a warrior at that time, but your son Solomon will build that temple. And that's where Solomon found such acceptance before God when he offered a thousand burnt offerings before the Lord. And what hit me, Laura, is that this was God specifically telling a parent, your child will worship me and serve me differently than you do. I'm the same God but David, I'm going to have a different relationship with your son than I have with you. He's going to worship me in a different way than you worshiped me. And, and that spoke loudly to me and just sort of opened up my mind, I think, then to receive these nine pathways. Wow, that's an incredible experience and journey. So now will you teach us what are each of these nine spiritual pathways? Yeah, uh, well, I'll just give a short description of each and you can stop me or ask for questions and if we want to get into them more afterwards we can do that but uh, in no particular order we could talk about the naturalist and these are Christians whose hearts are awakened when they get out of doors being surrounded by what God has made God just speaks to them their best place for worship and prayer is to either be in a forest in a park by a river outside looking at a sunset there's just something about creation that opens their eyes and heart up to the creator. Then we have the sensates. These are those believers whose hearts are most awakened to God through the five senses. 
what they see matters. The, the architecture of a church building will matter to them. Smell can be used. Touch, even taste, sound can, can really matter. The, the, the kind of music. But the, they are drawn to the divine through the very earthy aspects of their senses. They're the traditionalists who love God through ritual and symbol. A lot of people think that ritual and symbols are dead religion, but not to a traditionalist. Their hearts are awakened when, for instance, they may keep the church calendar. They may love to pray prayers that have been prayed for hundreds, maybe over a thousand years. They love symbols because it reminds them of the truths they've remembered. Ritual is meaningful for them. They don't need to change their devotional style a lot. In fact, changing the way they meet with God could actually bring anxiety uh, and uncomfort rather than that sense of, of meeting with the Lord. So they prefer really not to have a lot of change. Ascetics is a not a good title, especially saying it verbally. It's spelled A-S-C-E-T-I-C-S. My publisher begged me to come up with a better one, but it, it refers to asceticism. So think of a monk or a nun. These are the people who like to get away. They want to be alone. And they want to shut off the world, whereas the traditionalist is drawn to God through creation and the sensate is drawn to God through their five senses. The ascetic wants to close their eyes. They don't want a clock that ticks. They don't want any smells to distract them. They live in an internal world. They want to be alone with the Lord. They want a simple environment because it's often those solitary practices that helps them connect with God. It's hard for them to hear God. If there are distractions, it's hard for them to see God if there are other things competing with that. So they're more like the monks and nuns who like to get away. They're the activists and they're drawn to God in the midst of confrontation and accomplishment. They want to fight God's battles. They feel closest to God when they're fighting a battle in his name, whether it's a prayer campaign, whether it's social justice that they're working on, whether they're trying to get volunteers. They never feel closer to God than when they're in the midst of fighting a battle for God. And then there's the caregivers who love God by loving others. They're the kind of people that think God never feels as near to me as he does when I draw near to someone that's hurting. It could be somebody who's sick. It could be painting somebody's house. It could be an EMT that works to, to help people in accidents get well, but they want to care for others. There's three more. Enthusiasts love to walk with God in celebration and mystery. They, they tend to be more the charismatic types, whereas the traditionalist loves the fact that, that everything is the same. In fact, a traditionalist at a church service might even look at his or her watch when the offering is passed. Say, All right, 1034, everything's on time. Everything's good. God is on his throne. Whereas the enthusiast is waking up saying, God, I pray that you'll come in such a dynamic and new way. We won't even get to offering. Everything will just be in chaos. So they often need to take spiritual risks. Lord, I pray that I could meet someone to share my faith with today that's supernatural. Or maybe you could show me someone that I could give a, a financial gift to that, that, that I don't know that they need, but they know that they need and will lead them to you. And they really are people who want to celebrate. The ascetics we talked about before are often focused on repentance and seriousness. Boy, the enthusiasts, they just want to celebrate. And they probably spend more money or time on music than they do on, on reading. Two more, the contemplatives have a very emotional relationship with God. They describe God as their beloved. 
They don't want to be busy. They hate being busy. They don't need to read a lot and they don't need to be loud. Like the ascetics, they probably most often want to be left alone. But they might even describe prayer as holding hands with God. People who really like to journal their thoughts and do certain things that, that lovers would do with each other, secret acts of devotion, or they might write a song if they're musical for God that they'll never sing for anyone else, or write a poem for God if they're literary, and then burn the poem saying, God, this is just for you. You're my lover. This is just for you. And then finally, we have the intellectuals. And I don't want people to think that you have to be particularly intelligent. I mean, I, I kind of fall in this camp. Conceptual might be better. What it simply means is that to awaken these believers' hearts, you got to inform their mind. When they understand new things about God, when they learn new things about God, that's when they worship God. That's when their hearts are awakened. And so if they're at a worship service, it's all about feelings and testimonies. They're kind of in the back saying, can you give me some data? Can you give me something to seek my teeth into? Because if they don't hear new truths, their hearts just don't warm up. So you can see all nine, no worship service could possibly meet the needs of each nine of these pathways, which is I just, why I describe them as the Monday through Saturday form of worship, rather than trying to say that you can hit all nine on a Sunday morning. Wow, that is such a great summary, first of all. And then I love that practical application. This is the Monday through Saturday. So it's not the pressure to find a church that offers all of this. This is a personal invitation with the Lord. Let's take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. I'm so excited to share today's sponsor, Windshape Marriage, with you. Windshape Marriage is a fantastic ministry that helps couples prepare, strengthen, and if needed, even save their marriage. Windshape Marriage is grounded on the belief that the strongest marriages are the ones that are nurtured, even if it seems like things are going smoothly. That way, they'll be stronger if they do hit a bump along their marital journey. Through their weekend retreats, Windshape Marriage invites couples to enjoy time away to simply focus on each other. These weekend retreats are hosted within the beautiful refuge of Windshape Retreat, perched in the mountains of Rome, Georgia, which is just a short drive from Atlanta, Birmingham, and Chattanooga. While you and your spouse are there, you'll be well-fed, well-nurtured, and well-cared for. During your time away in this beautiful place, you and your spouse will learn from expert speakers and explore topics related to intimacy, overcoming challenges, improving communication, and so much more. I've stayed on site at Windshape before, and I can attest to their generosity, food, and content. You will be so grateful you went. To find an experience that's right for you and your spouse, head to their website, winshapemarriage.org. That's W-I-N-S-H-A-P-E marriage.org. Thanks for your sponsorship. Gary, I have a few follow-up questions. Are we a blend of multiple pathways? And also, can we change our preferred pathway over time? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you asked this, Laura. I the last thing I want to do, the last thing I want to do is to take people from a quiet time box and put them in a sacred pathway box. This is about freedom. This is about joy, desire, delight, and invitation. And so I think a lot of people are blends. In fact, I point out in the book that you see all nine of those in Jesus. I believe you see four or five of them in David and two or three in Moses. And it's, it's really kind of my belief that the closer you get to God, the more your heart awakens to him. There's more ways that God can reach out to you. 
So, yeah, definitely, I think we can be blends. The key about knowing them, however, is that if you're really spiritually hungry, say you're really frustrated with your spouse, your kids don't seem to be thanking you, your friends aren't getting you, you feel like you're all alone, and you know you're not in a safe place spiritually, knowing your preferred pathway is like knowing your favorite restaurant. Okay, if I'm really hungry, that's where I'm going to be fed. And so I, I think it's helpful just to be able to write yourself a spiritual prescription. You know, before I start becoming short with the kids or bitter or angry or negative, you know, what? I just need to spend some time with the Lord. And I know this is where God meets me easier than any other way. And so I'm going to pursue this pathway. Um, but I have had people talk to me how different times in their life they felt like, well, one time I was a naturalist. I think more I'm intellectual. But as I get older, I'm actually becoming more of a caregiver. Uh, again, I, I don't think we should try to squeeze ourselves into boxes as just look at these as a menu of opportunities. There are probably a few dishes you'll choose more often than others, but that doesn't mean you can't occasionally stick your toe in another ocean and enjoy it just as much. Yeah, I think you're just presenting the freedom and keeping the goal is the main thing. It's the connection with the Lord. Less important is how we naturally fall into one of these but how can each of us begin to identify our primary preference for our way to connect with God? Yeah. Well, I, I think some people hearing me describe them might have just had their heart awakened. What intrigues you most um, in the book? I don't want to sound like a shameless huckster here, but but every chapter has a test where you score yourself. It asks you a number of questions. Uh, let me see if I can give an example here. Are you a caregiver? And then ask these questions. I feel closest to God when I see him in the needy, the poor, the sick, and the imprisoned. I feel God's presence most strongly when I'm sitting quietly by the bed of someone who is lonely or ill, or when I'm taking a meal to someone in need. Or a second question. I grow weary of Christians who spend their time singing songs while a sick neighbor goes without a hot meal or a family in need doesn't get help fixing their car. Three, the words service and compassion are very appealing to me. And it goes on. And I have a, a, a simple phrase for all nine of them that they're also asked to score. And let me read those. For the naturalist, what they often say is, let me be outdoors. The sensate will say, let me experience. The traditionalist will say, let me remember. The ascetic will say, let me be alone. The activist will say, let me conquer. The caregiver will say, let me care. The enthusiast will say, let me celebrate. The contemplative, let me feel. The intellectual, let me think. And so on a scale of one to five, you say, okay, this is me. This is a five. This is a one. This is a three. And then you add it all up and you come out and you sort of have this blend of, of who you are. And, and what I found helpful, Laura, in fact, I'm going to be teaching on this with the church next week. It's also a very practical tool to help our kids connect with God. We recognize that they're not all going to have the same quiet time that we do. And so if we're familiar with the nine pathways, when I was raising my kids and I say, well, how's your time going with the Lord? And they're saying, well, this isn't going so well. And that's going so well. I, I could just flip through the pathways in my mind. I said, well, have you tried this? Or maybe you could look at that. Or, or how about we try that? Really, instead of trying to, are you spending time with God? Are you doing it the way we decide? Really trying to make it so they too would feel like I missed that. And I loved it one time when I was walking with my very introverted uh, oldest daughter one time in the woods. And there was this 
bench right under a tree and Allie stopped me. She goes, Dad. I go, yeah? Wouldn't that be a great place to have a quiet time? And and I just love that. It was on a local hike and she just realized, okay, yeah, if I'm going to have a quiet time, that's where I want to have my quiet time. That's what I was gunning for with my kids. So I think it's helpful to know it for ourselves. I think it's helpful to know it for our spouse so we can release our spouses. If you're married to an ascetic, you shouldn't take it personally that they need some time away from you. It's just they connect with God better if they can get away from you, even on vacation. So don't take it personally. If you're married to an activist, they've got to be out there in the front lines. They might embarrass you some. But then also for your kids. All right. If it's so important for our kids to connect with God, how do we build on the power of desire instead of just discipline to draw them in so they want to spend time in God's presence? And I think you just laid out ways that we can maximize the use of sacred pathways for discipling others, such as our children. And I'd also like to camp out here a little bit. It benefits relationships, too, because I can think of examples in marriage where if you're so opposite and you've never heard these terms explained before, sometimes criticism can come in when we don't understand the other person. Yes, And so are there any other benefits that you can think of relationally from identifying both our own preferred pathway and the pathway of others? Well, I'd like to emphasize what you just said, because I've seen that as a pastor, Laura, when, for instance, let's say a husband just isn't that into singing. He's just not that musical. I remember one husband saying, I can't wait till heaven when I can sing with more than one note. (laughs) <laughs> in theory, he likes the idea of music, but he's just not a very good practitioner. And so if there's singing and, and the wife says, well, that's worship singing and he doesn't seem that enthusiastic, she might think, well, he's not that into God. But he might be the first one who raises his hand if somebody's car needs fixed or somebody needs something built or painted or whatnot. Because for him, he really feels closer to God when he's doing something in God's name. Maybe he's a caregiver. And, and so it's understanding that, that we shouldn't be judging each other. We should be trying to learn from each other. Two of the pathways that are often at odds with each other, and this is where I think understanding can help build bridges, are the caregivers and the activists. The activists are out there on the front lines. They're confronting people. They tend to be dealing with macro issues. How do we stop this injustice? How do we keep this from happening Whereas the caregiver is often focused on the individual, not the cause, the individual. They want to help the victims of the injustice with their sickness, with the discrimination, whatever's been happening in their life. And so I try to tell activists and caregivers, don't you see how brilliant God is that he created some Christians who feel closest to him when they're trying to stop the injustice? But since injustice still happens, how brilliant it is that he also creates some Christians that feel closest to him when they're treating the victims of injustice. You're serving the same God. You're involved in the same cause just from two different ends. One is trying to deal with the macro issues. One's trying to deal with the micro issue. The church is richer for having both. In fact, it would be an impoverished church if we only had activists and didn't have caregivers or only had caregivers and didn't have activists. So what I've loved when small groups have gone through this is the the two things I often hear is that there's so much freedom for me individual. And secondly, 
and now I get them. You know, that's why they never want to do Bible study. They just want us to sing for an hour and a half or they never actually really want us to meet in a home. They just want us to go out into a soup kitchen or picket or write letters. So they start to, oh, this is why he only wants, he, he would rather we did 55 minutes of Bible study and five minutes of coffee and call it a night. And they never understood it until they realized, well, that's because that's how she or he really connects with the Lord. It's natural for them to want to emphasize that activity. So it really creates an understanding and appreciation for the wider body of Christ. And I love how you give that visual of it building bridges, because then instead of unnecessarily judging one another, we can begin to encourage and build each other up when we have this common language or understanding of what may be in the best interest of someone else. Yes. And it sets me free, Laura, because I realize I can't be all things to all people because God is too big for one finite human to be able to understand him or to celebrate him. We just aren't. Jesus was. Jesus had online pathways, but we're we're not going to. And so I realize I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to remind me if I'm not naturally an activist, I got to be reminded that every one of us are at times supposed to do activist things. If I'm not naturally a caregiver, I need to be reminded that we're still supposed to care for victims. I might be more of an ascetic than an enthusiast, but the ascetic needs to be reminded, hey, it's okay to be serious, but God is worthy of being celebrated. But also the enthusiast, hey, it's not enough just to celebrate. Maybe you need to learn from the intellectual that you need to be in the word. You need to have your mind challenged and shaped and, and formed. So that's the brilliance of God creating us differently. It reminds us of the different ways that we experience God and understand God and why none of us on our own uh, are, are enough. We're, we're a part of the church. We're, we're the bride of Christ corporately. And, and it gives me a new appreciation for the church. There is an exciting project taking place behind the scenes right now, and I would love to invite you to participate. I will give you more details as I'm able, but for now, here's my request. Will you email me your personal story of a specific way God has clearly shown up in your life? Big or small, I want to hear an account of the way He made Himself known to you and maybe received credit for an answered prayer or a way he worked out a situation in a miraculous way, or how he displayed his power in your life. There's no limit to the type of story to submit, as long as it's true. So please email me your story at this email address, info at thesavvysauce.com. I can't wait to read your story. Thanks for sharing. I think you've done a great job laying out the definitions of each type. And can you partner each of these nine with a story that comes to mind? Well, I think for the naturalist, what struck me is when my oldest daughter went away to college for the first time. And she was away from the house and I missed her terribly. And if I really wanted to feel closer to her again, I would go into her room. And she wasn't in the room, but the way she had designed it and shaped it and left everything, it just spoke of her personality. And so if I just wanted to feel closer to her, I would just go into a room even though she wasn't there. And that's really the story behind the naturalists. They know that God isn't in nature. We're not pantheists. But being surrounded by nature reminds us 
of the presence of God. We see his majesty in the mountains. We see his love for beauty. I'll never forget a mountain climber who told me how odd he was when he was in this place where he didn't know that anybody else would be there that year. It was just this remote place. And there was this incredibly beautiful flower. He says, you know how that spoke to me that we have a God who loves beauty, even if it's not going to be seen by people. And that, that was a sermon to him that, that left him. So um, I think for for naturalists, often those that, that kind of gives a picture of who they are. For the caregiver, I think of when Mother Teresa was visited by Franklin Graham and Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce was the founder of World Vision at the time. Franklin Graham was working with Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Association. They were in Calcutta to visit Mother Teresa. And just to remind the people that are with us that Mother Teresa's Sisters of Mercy depended on charitable gifts. And World Vision and the Billy Graham Association represented tens of millions of dollars on offer. And so you'd think she might want to hurry up and meet these two people. But when they came there, and this is from Franklin Graham himself who told me this, the sister came out and said, well, Mother Superior will be happy to visit with you as soon as the man that she's holding dies. Mm. She was caring for a leper victim, nameless, faceless. No, nobody will ever know who he was. But at that moment, he was more important to her than Franklin Graham and Bob Pierce. And the reason is because Mother Teresa said it's when she cared for those lepers that Jesus felt present to her. She wasn't really caring for them. In one sense, she was caring for Jesus. And while he may not seem as important as Franklin Graham or Bob Pierce, Jesus is infinitely more important. And so for her, it wasn't just a discipline. In fact, Mother Teresa asked the sisters that applied for the Sisters of Mercy, does this work give you joy? And if they didn't immediately say yes, they didn't get in. She wasn't looking for martyrs. She was looking for people through whom caring for others really helped them connect with God. So the intellectual, here's a good story for the intellectual. I was at a luncheon. I'd been speaking and there are a group of people around the table. And this guy next to me, he was just in an Oxford shirt and jeans, but he just looked familiar. And I lived and worked around Washington, D.C. at the time. And finally, it struck me. And so I asked him, are, are you, I gave his name of the retired United States Senator. He goes, yeah, but don't tell anybody. I'm just enjoying being here anonymously. Well, several people around heard me ask him that question. And it was amazing to me how differently everybody started treating him. He was the same person then as he had been five minutes before, but understanding something new about him. He was a retired United States Senator, gave him a new respect. People spoke to him and treated him differently. That's what it's like for the intellectual. God is omniscient. God is three in one. God's grace is, is unlimited. The power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's understanding those things about God says, wow, I mean, I knew God was wonderful, but this makes me respect him all the more. So that's how understanding something new about God can create a new passion for God. For the sensate, I think a good example I could use Henry Nouwen. Some people might remember him as a beloved spiritual writer. He once left teaching at an Ivy League school and then spent the second part of his life until his death working at a, a ministry that reached out to developmentally disabled adults. And the thing that helped him decide to do that was when he was in this turmoil of, God, what do you want me to do? 
he came across a printing of Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. And it was hard for him to describe. He says, there's just something about the reds, about the blues, the expression of the father's face. He was so moved. He went to St. Petersburg where the original is kept. And it's a gigantic painting. I mean, it's gigantic. And he spent an entire day praying and crying and weeping and listening to God in front of that painting. And that confirmed his move from teaching at a, you know, an Ivy League school to working with these developmentally disabled adults. And, and that's the, the story of a sensate, that God can use something beautiful like art that you see that just opens up your heart to God's beauty and speaks of transcendent things and that opens you up then to worshiping God. And so a, a sensate would get that. Yeah, I'd love to have a quiet time in a museum instead of in a forest or in a, even um, perhaps in a cathedral. The ascetic is the one who really needs to get away and to create an austere environment. And sometimes when you're living in a small house and you have a lot of kids, it's difficult to do. But we had a friend, again, they had a very small house. They had two, let me say, rambunctious kids and whatnot. And she just couldn't get alone. And she wanted to meet with the Lord. And so what she would often do, once she got the kids in bed, even wanting to escape from her husband, she would go into their one bathroom turn off the light, turn on the faucet. So water provided sort of white noise in the background. And that's how she met with the Lord. And it told me that what she was doing is she was trying to create this ascetic environment. She needed to get away. She didn't want distractions. She had this internal faith. I need to meet with the Lord. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to see anything. I just want to be able to focus on God. That's a classic ascetic who even in a small house finds a very creative way to get alone. Um, they're the activists, um, and <laughs> the activists are those that, again, for them, church is a pit stop. That, that might be a good description of the activists. Um, church isn't really about just worshiping and celebrating. It's about getting petitions signed or volunteers to go out where God becomes very real. And, and a story of the activists, I might even use the Apostle Paul. I'll never forget when Lisa and I were in college, there was just this beloved retired missionary. He'd gone to China. In fact, he was one of the 200 that Hudson Taylor called out for. A lot of the people with us may not remember that, but it was a very famous moment in church history. Hudson Taylor was a famous missionary to China, and he sent out a call for 200 to join him, and, and this man had been one of them. And we were moving from the West Coast where we were and had been meeting with him to the East Coast, and he didn't know if we'd ever see us again. And he pulled me aside just before we left, and we had prayed regularly throughout our time there. And he said, Gary, I, I want to remind you of a story from the life of Paul. And Paul was before a um, secular ruler who was questioning him. And, and Paul essentially said, you may not like what I say or what I do or the way I dress, but this much is true. And I'm quoting from Acts 26, 19. I have not been disobedient to the vision given me from heaven. And the missionary told me, Gary, my prayer for you is that when you're at the end of your life, like Paul, you could look at anybody that questions you and say, I was given a vision from God. I've not been disobedient to that vision. I've finished it. And that goes back, of course, to what Jesus said on the cross, according to the gospel of John, it is finished. The activists for their life to make sense needs to know what is their it 
that they need to finish. If they're going to go home to see the Lord, they want to say, well, Lord, here's what I did. It's finished. They just need that cause to drive them. For the contemplative, a fun thing that I, I could go back to when my oldest daughter was just a young girl. She was a toddler at the time, maybe 18 months, just crawling around. So maybe even a little younger than that. And I was working at this older church that still had those big wooden offering plates. And and she was crawling around while I was working and she crawled right up into the plate and sat down in the middle of it. <laughs> and, and one of the interns said, that's that's what we're supposed to do. We should be the offering to God. And that's a contemplative's heart. God, I, it's not so much that I need to understand you like the intellectual. It's not so much that I need to serve you like the activist. It's not so much that I need to be your hands and feet like the caregiver. I just want to love on you. I just want to give you myself. I'm just offering myself to you. Um, and so that's really the picture of the contemplative. They put themselves in the offering plate and say, Lord, I'm yours. The traditionalist is, is a fun one. People might say rituals are dead, but I, I remember back when Lisa and I started celebrating Lent. Um, you, you've probably picked up that my wife is a very healthy, she may be the healthiest eater I know. And I mentioned to my junk food penchant before I met her, she has done great strides uh, with me. So one of the things she was always after in Lent, she wanted to break me of this bad habit that she's since broken. I had to have a Pepsi every day. I was about as addicted to Pepsi as you could be. And so I went 40 days without Pepsi. And it was amazing to me because it was just a couple days before Easter. And I was at one of the Christian bookstores and she was ringing up my purchases. And she said, can you believe it's almost Easter? Man, it came so quickly. And I was like, no, it didn't. <laughs> it crawled here on its hands and knees because I had gone 37 days without my Pepsi. And just giving up a little bit of carbonated sugar water helped me live with the reality of Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. It tuned me in so I was ready for Easter. I was prepared for Easter. It was such an insignificant small sacrifice, not even really a sacrifice. I was healthier because of it. But just doing that ritual of experiencing Lent made Easter last for weeks instead of hours. And it was wonderful. And then finally, we could talk about the enthusiasts. And I, I think for the enthusiasts, it's just more about somebody that would wake up and say, God, can you bring someone to my mind that really needs me? to call them. They need to take spiritual risks. Lord, I, I'm, I'm going to be on this flight. I, I want to bring up a conversation with somebody. I pray you'd use me to either encourage somebody to share my faith, or uh, I saw one, they bought a, a card at a grocery store and they walked up to him and said, you know what? I think Jesus just wants me to give this to you. And when they see God move that way, Lord, that fires up their soul. They're so excited for God because it reminds them he's real. He's not a memory. He's not embedded in history. Jesus is building his church today. His Holy Spirit is active and filling us. And the enthusiasts, God bless them and thank you, God, for them. Remind us of the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, that God is worthy of being celebrated and that we can celebrate him as well. Wow, these stories just bring up just the tip of the iceberg of how creative our God is and how unique and individualized 
these options are for connecting with him. And your nine ways to connect with God have remained the same for many decades now. Are there any that you would like to add to these original nine? You know, that's what was so fun. Uh, If people want to know what you're referring to, I first wrote this book back in 96. And then I got to uh, update it because I was mentioning things like cassette tapes. And I used figures that I thought were well known, like General George Schwarzkopf. And so I was just able to update it. And I would have had a chance to do that. But again, I I go back to the book feeling like I was an archaeologist. When I went back at that, well, I think God gave it to me. And so many pastors and churches have used it and described it and have done curriculums and sermon series on it. And they pretty much hold up. I don't know that there's another one. Somebody said they might suggest a relational pathway, but I I kind of roll that into the enthusiasts because it's more fun to celebrate when you've got other people around you. And for the mystery of God, you kind of need to be interacting with other people. So I think... Really, the relational pathway, I would say, is part of the enthusiast pathway. But because these are based really, you know, on on the ancient Christian classics and scripture and church history, I was very pleased. I think they've held up pretty well. That is so incredible just to see the inspiration from the Lord for these nine. And have you ever thought of what types of churches typically each pathway is drawn to? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great point. Well, you know, if you go to the Quakers where they just often will sit and there's not someone there, it's really quiet worship and simple. You think a little bit of the ascetics, but also in one sense, a little bit of the enthusiast waiting for God to take over. The Eastern Orthodox Church is classic sensei. If you've ever been to an Eastern Orthodox service, They've got the incense, they're ringing bells, you touch things, you might even kiss things. The Eucharist is a key part, so you're you're tasting something, majestic music. If you look at their churches, they're usually very ornate. I mean, it would be a sensate's delight. Uh, If you're an intellectual, I think that classic Presbyterian, old school Presbyterian service where you have one hymn, a 45-minute sermon, and one hymn in the offering, and you're done. I mean, that's an intellectual's dream. They don't have to wait through a lot of worship to get there. Obviously, enthusiasts would would probably feel more at home in a more charismatic church that might have at least 30 minutes of worship and clapping of hands and and celebrating. So, you know, I think it it was fun. I don't think there's a one-to-one correlation necessarily, but I do think it's funny how a lot of Christian denominations really do seem to reflect one particular pathway. And what is your encouragement for any churches or any families who want to incorporate more of these nine ways into their lives or their ministries? Yeah, I I think having respect for how God made you and having respect for how God made others. That's why we need the nine, not just to find out who we are, but to recognize that that it helps us as a church and as a family worship God more fully. A very well-known pastor used sacred pathways in a large pastor's conference. He was speaking to thousands of pastors. And he said, as he was reading the book, he just winced. He says, I came up to the chapter on the activists and I knew Gary Thomas was about to describe me. And he says that, that frustrated me because in my ideal self, he said, I'm, I'm a desert father. I'd be more like the ascetic. He goes, but then I said to myself, as I read Gary describe me, I thought, who am I kidding? I want to fly over the desert 
and tell the church to get off its butt. He goes, <laughs> a desert father would never use the word butt. In fact, a desert father probably doesn't even have a butt. He's fasted so often. And, you know, they were laughing and he was making his point. But he warned about what he called pathway envy. And he said that, you know, and, and I think this is so true, that God isn't like a general manager of a professional sports team that has to draft players with certain skills. God's the creator who creates people with certain skills. And he says, my church needs activists. My church needs enthusiasts. My church needs intellectuals. My church needs the caregivers. And so he creates us. And if we'll just let people be who they are, then the entire church will be served. Don't try to turn a contemplative into an activist. Let them spend time with the Lord and they might come back with just gems of insight. Let the intellectuals teach us and help us understand the great teachings they're talking about. But let the activists challenge us to, to do justly and to love mercy and to confront injustice while the caregivers remind us hey, there are victims here. We, we need to be loving others. There are people who are injured and hurt and they need care and we need to be God's hands and feet to go out to them. And so I think as a family and as a church, when you can tell your, your child or your spouse or members of your Bible study, yeah, that's the activist in you. And then everybody starts laughing, but it's affirmation. It's not ridicule. It's not judgment. It's not sarcasm. It's thank you. We need that. But no, we are still going to have Bible study tonight. We're not going to cancel it for the next three weeks and go pick at that place. I mean, so you, you can affirm it and laugh about it and enjoy each other in a way that builds up the body instead of dividing the body. And same thing is true of the family. Oh, that's so good. And just promoting unity. And I guess just First Corinthians 12 comes to mind of the body of Christ and each one playing a different role and experiencing him in a different way. So you've beautifully communicated that today, Gary, and you have so many other books and knowledge to offer people. So where can all of us find and follow you online? Well, thank you. Um, the easiest way is to go to my website, which is GaryThomas.com. It's just G-A-R-Y-T-H-O-M-A-S. The only reason I spell that is it seems to me like a very simple name to spell but I think I'm about 15 different ways that baristas have spelled my name. So <laughs> it amazes me. It's four letters. And it's been very crazy. So if you could spell my name, G-A-R-Y, put Thomas on the end and you could find it. And that's got links to see Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, they could read up on some of the books. I could see some things there for Sacred Pathways. We have the book. We also have a small group curriculum or you could do it with your family where I speak about 18 minutes or so, and then there's a participant's guide with all of the questions and exercises to do throughout the week. Uh, if you really want to explore that in a group setting, that um, curriculum would be a great thing to do. Wonderful. We will link to all of that in today's show notes. And Gary, you may know we're called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge or insight. And so as my final question for you today, what is your Savvy Sauce? Well, let, let me relate it to this, if I could. What I love about this is that the call to the pathways is that it means God desires a relationship with each one of us, that every person who is with us right now has a present they can give to God that no one else can give to him, but God wants it very much. And that's our personal 
devotion. Jesus tells us that that he, he was the kind of guy who would leave the 99 who were found to find the one who is lost. And, and the analogy I give to help people understand this is, I think, imagine that you had 12 children. 11 of them were grateful. They loved you. They celebrated you. They gave you presents. They thanked you. But one of those children said to you two years ago, you're not my mother. As far as I'm concerned, I don't have any parents. I, I, I don't follow you. I'll never speak to you again. As far as I'm concerned, I don't have a parent. And they walked out that door. You can still hear the, the screen door slamming as they left. You haven't heard from them or seen them since. And I like to ask parents, can you imagine the love of the 11, how wonderful it is ever erasing the hurt of that one who's lost? And Laura, I've never had a parent say, yeah, if I had 11 children love me that well, I, I would never even think about the 12. And the Bible tells us that's who God is, the God who leaves the 99 to find the one. And so with the pathways, we can say, God, my devotion matters to you. I don't know why I'm so insignificant. If I was gone, if I had never lived, I don't know if the world would be a different place, but it matters to you. And so today I want to give it to you. And I want to give it to you the way that you created me to give it to you. Uh, this isn't just about us getting our spiritual needs met. It's really about giving a precious gift to God that no one else can give to him. And that's our personal devotion. Well, Gary, this time has been such a joy, and I can just see how God has gifted you with communication and with teaching and your energy, and I just appreciate little things like how you esteem Lisa so well, and all of that wrapped together, I just want to say thank you for being my guest today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a delight, Laura. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so He cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from Him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death, and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a Savior. But God loved us so much, He made a way for His only Son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with Him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished, if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring, Him for me, so me for Him. You get the opportunity to live your life for Him. 
At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.